edition of Scrumcast. I'm Chris Connybeer. I'm Roy Vandewater. I'm Derek Neighbors. I'm Drew Leswear. So today, uh, trying to go through topics and something we thought about was uh, large corporations and the need for artifacts during sprints and man- during projects using agile methods. So I've worked in uh, several large corporations where been beaten under with uh, pages and pages of requirements and tracking and um, all kinds of other documents needed for our artifacts needed for managing a project. I want to get the uh, the group's feedback on what your feelings are and also with some of the people here that have been working offside at, at other teams. Have you come across this these kinds of issues and how, how have you tried to deal with that in adopting agile and scrum techniques? So I think I think part of it with the uh, with the documents like what is the real value that they're trying to get out of these documents? Like, what are they trying to accomplish by having these documents as part of their process? Okay. So I, I think traditionally what I've seen with a lot of documents is that they have been put in place to try to enforce processes when other ways weren't working for making sure that these processes were happening, such as release management and making sure that security checks have happened and code checks have happened, you know, just sign off because people weren't doing their jobs. People weren't being held accountable, and they weren't doing what they said they were going to do. So documentation and processes were put in place to, to try to clean that up. So would you say that most of these documents are just uh, – or most of these artifacts are documentation of accountability? Uh, I think accountability, but also user requirements. I've seen some rather large user requirement documents that, you know, if you had interactions, if you had conversations with the business o- business owner and the stakeholders, um, you could do a lot better job in understanding instead of just throwing a document over the wall and then waiting for something to come back over. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I used to think that um, the, the desire to over-document, right? So I think we can all agree Agile's not about documentation. Um, but I used to think it was all about cover your ass, meaning that the reason that most of the managers I saw that were demanding documentation is a team member. I always felt like they were doing it because um, they didn't trust the team, and so they wanted some artifact to prove that if their boss yelled at them, they could say, like, well, look, you know, we documented all this, and the documentation's been out there for a long time, and nobody commented on it, so how would we know? Um, but the other night I was... Uh, kind of rereading uh, Lisa Adkins' uh, Coaching Agile Teams book. And she said something in it that made me just now think about documentation. And that was, she said, when she was a typical project manager um, before adopting Agile, that one of the things that she said is she didn't ever have to deal with conflict. And the reason she never had to deal with conflict is because of the way that the processes were built is everybody was siloed and you were only on a project for a certain amount of time. So if I'm a, if I'm the manager of a testing team, I'm only on the testing project for a certain amount of time. So if there's also all sorts of conflict and whatever brewing up, it doesn't really matter because in four weeks we're not on this project anymore. And so all the conflicts we had with other people were gone. And I think this is one of the key reasons big companies really want documentation is they are so siloed and they play past the baton so much that they're really deathly afraid of it's almost like having turnover every four to six weeks inside of a company. So if you think about an, your entire team kind of leaving and another team picking up where you left off, that's really scary. And so the best way to, to combat that is why well, I want all sorts of documentation. So when I'm the new guy coming in, I've got kind of my cheat sheet to go back to if I get confused. And so to me, you know, is this part of the problem with big organizations, right? Is that is it they they are not fluid enough, they're not cross-functional enough, and it 
incurs the 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 desire to have documentation to cover up for that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. Uh, you know, obviously, there's less of a need for as extensive documentation when you're working in a more open environment where the team communicates verbally primarily. Um, I, I also really think the, the the comment or the phrase or the idea that the main artifacts should be the code and the tests is really powerful. You know, that, hey, what is it? what actually is happening? You know, the documentation can say whatever. It become become outdated. But the code and the tests are actually, the code and, and the tests that pass are actually, like, real concrete documentation and, uh, you know, commit histories as well. And so, yeah, I think in, in an environment where you're, where you're more open, where you're not siloed, where there's more verbal communication and where you have good code and good tests, then there's a lot less need for extensive documentation that's probably n- not read very much anyway. Now, the one thing I want to throw out there is that in regards to this documentation conversations, I don't want people to get confused and say that we're, we're trying to say throw out all documentation because there's still going to be some documentation that's needed. You're going to have compliance issues. You're going to have maybe general architectural diagrams for, for a high system level understanding. What I've seen, though, is that since I've come to, you know, been an integrum, I've learned communication. Communication is everything. And, and, and um, you know, team ownership of code is everything. That, that makes a big difference. And what, I'm, what I've seen in corporations is that they're replacing communication with documentation. And that, that's where, Derek, you know, maybe, maybe the reason some of this turnover is happening is because there's no communication. Who, who's happy on a team when you're not communicating with anybody? You know, and they don't realize that maybe that's why people get, hap- get, unhap- get upset in what they're doing. So how do we try to replace communication, you know, replace that documentation as being used as communication that we're used to in the projects that we manage? I think also that it's a part of part of what Derek had initially stated, where where you you'd previously believed that it's a lot about trust. I think a lot of that still is true. That a lot of it is about trust, and that if you have a team that is consistently underperforming, and whether it be because they've only been on the project for two or three weeks, because everybody's on the project only two three weeks at a time, like if if people stay on a project for longer and start performing and start doing well, I think that their managers will find less of a less of a need to require documentation of them. Because they know that this team is going to do what they say they're going to do, regardless of whether or not they fill out the, the whatever report. And then, and then also, as far as as far as teams switching out really frequently, what's the primary reason for that? So I, I think it's because everybody's specialized. So if if I'm the enterprise architect, right? Well, I'm only needed at really at the beginning of the project, full time, and then after that, you just consult me if you feel that there's a need uh, change in architecture. If I'm a you know the Q and A team, um, and you really consider a story done when it's coded, not when it's gone through full Q and A, I'm looking at the project in a much different time than everybody else. So you know I need all sorts of artifacts to come along with me because you're not avail you're on another project as a developer. You're working on another project uh, potentially by the time I'm doing a large portion of the QA or the enterprise architects now on a, you know another project by the time it gets to it. So I, I think that there's um, you know, something to be said for communication pathways, right? So I think large companies have larger teams, which means it's harder to communicate face-to-face or person-to-person. And so it's easier to say, well, we need to write that down so that anybody on the team can have access to that, even when we are on the same project. But when I think you add in the silos and not being cross-functional, it, it really becomes, 
you know, people people are really to me it really comes down to people are treated like resources instead of like people. And so, um, you know, managers treat everybody like a completely interchangeable widget that they're just pu- pushing and plugging. So it's really easy to say, well, I really like the work that Roy's doing and I need Roy this week, so I'm going to pull him pull that widget out and plug him into this other product. And now all your knowledge is gone and because now you're on another team, it's no longer culturally acceptable for everybody on your old team to communicate with you to ask you information. And so if you didn't leave a litany of artifacts and you hadn't been communicating with that team, all of your knowledge is now gone. And so the way managers try to protect themselves from that, I believe, is they want people to document absolutely everything so that they're guarded. If their resources get taken away, they've got a uh, backup plan or a transitional plan to bring on new resources. And that goes so much back to silos. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I I agree as well. And even if there is a situation where, you know, maybe, you know, like you were saying how somebody's just kind of plug and play like a widget out from one team to another, um, I still think that the need for extensive documentation is still not needed if if the coders, if the programmers um, write good tests, write good code, and, and sure, maybe give, you know, a, a shorter overview of, you know, written documentation that's not part of the code of tests as needed, just for kind of a big picture. But uh, if they're doing things the right way, then, yeah, still extensive, extensive documentation, extensive artifact, extra artifacts aren't needed. So do you feel that it's necessary for large corporations to have all of these specialized roles, like people who are no. specialists? Because I, I kind of understand that, like, if we take it to a tool shed metaphor, right? Like, if you have one employee who's good for everything, like something that's used for everything, like a hammer, you can use for whatever tool. Like, it's great, it's great to have on hand because you can use it wherever you go. But having a specialty tool is way more effective in those key circumstances. Do you find Does that metaphor carry over into the business world, or is that a broken I, I, idea? I, I don't think it does entirely because the, the two things that I think that it leaves out is, one, it leaves out what you get from somebody who is well-rounded. Meaning that when you're really talking knowledge work, it's not cut and dry of, you know, here's the here's the, the, the bandsaw I need, cut the bandsaw, and now I'm taking it over and using sandpaper and sandpapering it. You know, the, the, the work that uh, teams do is dynamic enough um, that you really need to understand the whole concept of woodworking. Right, so it's not it's not just a matter of being able to understand like I'm the best drill press guy in the world. Um, you're probably not making a whole lot of great furniture if you're the only know how to operate the drill press. You get to be a little more rounded. You may not be as good as the guy who only works the drill press all day, but you're now also able to create things that somebody else that is you know unifunctional is not capable um, of doing. And I I think that that's probably um, the biggest piece of uh, that and that to me pulls on to the second side and that is that you're not nimble if you have a bunch of specialists because you're limited by your resource allocation. So if I say I've got one of these guys, five of these guys, six of these guys, eight of these guys, and all of a sudden a competitor pops up and I need to handle something, I need to extend the software, I need to, to create a new project or do something, and I, and I don't have an enterprise architect ready right now, well, now I have to wait, well, when's the next time the enterprise architect's ready? Okay, six months. Okay, we can't start that project for six months. Whereas if you've got well-rounded people, it's a lot easier to be able to pivot and to shift, but because even though they might not be the best at a particular thing, they're able to get up and running with that. And if you're in an environment where there's communication and self-organization, what I see is people make the right choices. So if I really suck at JavaScript and I'm going in a project that's heavy JavaScript, 
I could tag out and say, you know what, Drew, you really need to be on this project. I'm not the right person for this. We need to shift places. And if we're allowed to do that, the right things happen, right? Or, hey, I need you to pair with me on this because I want to get better at JavaScript, but I don't want to slow this project down or I don't have the expertise to do it. And so I think if you let let people make good decisions, um, they'll unsilo themselves. We got any other comments on that or...? I think I think that's a great point. The the uh, the pairing, you know, it kind of merged into kind of cross-functional teams discussion a little bit. But yeah, pairing is great for that. I think it really comes down to a lot of you know, like you said, Derek, getting the teams to communicate, being able to get people to work together, and also not just communication on the teams, but communication throughout the business. You know, let's get rid of 500-page requirements documents and start opening up communication channels with the people that are involved with the software. Now, I've met quite a few developers that are not a big fan of doing communication. Like, there's a lot of people going to the computer science industry that I, that I remember from college that couldn't wait to graduate, get their own cu- cubicle, and never have to deal with another human mm-hmm. being again. And how do you think that pe- – how do you feel that people like that that are kind of hiding behind documentation as – as using documentation as a wall around them so that they don't interact with people. How do you think that impacts the company? I, I think it impacts – myself, I think it impacts the company poorly because how are you going to really understand what you're writing software for if you're just surrounding yourself with documentation? You know, How many times does it help when you actually have a one-on-one talk with a user and you see the frustration, you see, you see their eyes light up when they think about something, or you actually watch them work? There's something to be said about that because at the end of the day, we're writing software for human interaction, so we need to have human interaction to understand how that works with the software. A piece of paper doesn't tell me that. You know, All a piece of paper does is signify what made it through the process of probably higher-ups you know, and, and you know, whoever's in charge of the project whittling out and saying, no, this isn't as important as, as this is, but they aren't the people using the software at the end of the day. There's something to be said about having that communication. I think no matter what, we're always going to have people in the field that are going to stand behind the documentation. And we, we need to learn how to get them on the team but, and, and how to use them as effective resource. And like Derek said, you know, make sure that they're not just one, you know, a hammer. Make sure that they're well-rounded and we can use them in many, many different circumstances. But make sure that also you have components of the team that are able to have open, honest communication about what are the problems that you're trying to solve. Yeah, Cody, I really liked your answer to Roy's question is, you know, people who wall, them, wall themselves away with documentation – yeah, there's also the documentation of user requirements where that can be minified or reduced with just communication. And here we're not talking about just communication between the team, but communication with the end user. I, I really like that because the communication in the team and out of the team reduces the need for you know endless writing. And I think a lot of times it unlocks a lot of innovation too, where I, right. as a product owner, may build a requirements document and say, I want a piece of software that performs all of these functions and has all of these features and if in a non-communication sense we're purely using documentation I I receive that requirements document and I start building the software based off of that and then at the end of the day I give them some software and they say they say this doesn't give me the value that I'm looking for like it and, and, and the developer can say, but look, it, I can checkmark all of the requirements and it right. meets all of those. But if they had taken the moment from the beginning, taken the time and gotten together and talked about what the what the user really wanted or what the product owner really wanted in that case, they right. may have come up with a way better solution that's maybe easier for the developer to implement, that maybe gets the value to the end user better, that there would have been a better overall solution. And instead, they, they just use a limited form of communication to try to... to, to to try to tell the other person what they want when they don't really know what they want. Because how many times have you had that conversation where you do get a chance to talk to somebody 
and all of a sudden you you both get on the same page and go, wow, we can do this, and it's going to be a, a you know hell of a lot cheaper, hell of a lot easier, and it's going to be a better solution. Mm-hmm. But too many times when people are writing up documentation, they put these limitations on, on their knowledge, what they know how to do, or what they've seen, that hampers and changes the way that they're writing out that documentation. So then you know you're already you're already starting with some limitations in place based upon what that person knows. So when you have that communication, you're able to figure out better solutions. Just just like you said, but I mean, how many times have we had that where it's just like, oh, we can do this so much easier, you know? right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I th- I think to me, you kind of I think your question was something to the effect of, you know, what happens to the person that just wants to hold themselves up? And, and I think that. Um, to me, this is one of the biggest detriments we've seen in this industry in the last 20 years. Um, and when I say that, when, when I look back at the 50s and the 60s, um, some of the most prominent um, uh, software developers were women. And, oh, you know, you didn't have a cube. You had a computer room that was bigger than most offices that you had to operate in. So there was a much more communal aspect to computing in the early days of computing. And I think that it showed in the type of innovation and the type of work that was being produced at that time and the quality of the work being produced. And I think as we've turned into the, you know, put the programmer in the dark cave and feed him food underneath the door and he'll spit back code is is really hurt our industry and the innovation um, that we see. And I think what you're going to, what we're starting to see right now is as teams start to atop, adopt agile methodologies they become much more diverse they attract a much wider range of individual um, and that you start to see their solutions become much more creative and you start to see the people who want to work on those teams interact in a much different way and I, I think you you might see a day where there's not very many jobs available for the coder that just wants to go in and, and basically bang out code and be left alone um, because I don't think that's where innovation lies. As I don't think it lies in one person's head, and I think history proves that to us. Across the board, medicine, you know, architecture, you name it, it's not one person in a dark room being inspired by what's in their own head. It's by being inspired through conversation and interaction with their environment, and I think that that's the type of development we're moving to, is a much more humane style of development. Till then, we'll see you next time.